you're, you're somebody who wants to do good, it can be difficult to know how to do good. Um, so to give you an example, like if you are buying a TV or if you're investing in some stocks or shares, you can you see the product, you see the end product of that purchase. So you bring a TV home, you see how good the TV is, or you buy some stocks and shares and you see what the return is over time. When you're trying to do good, quite often you don't know what the end product is. You might give some money to a charity, um, and a charity produces some nice brochures and tells you some nice stories, but it's very difficult to know whether that actually changed or improved people's lives and by how much. So the link between effective altruism and development economics is trying to bridge that gap. Um, so this development economics revolution has really helped us to understand what works and why. And effective altruism kind of leveraged that research to say to people who want to do good, hey, if you want to help some of the world's poorest people, um, there are some ways that have more evidence and probably have a larger impact than others. And this has been quite powerful in terms of guiding people's donation decisions, but also guiding their kind of broader life decisions, um, whether it's what you do for a career, um, whether it's dietary, dietary restrictions that you, you impose on yourself or, or something else. That was Rosa O'Keefe Donovan, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Oxford, where he's a developmental economist. And he's also the chairperson of the board for an organization called One for the World, uh, which is an organization which aims to alleviate global poverty by getting young people to pledge 1% of their lifetime incomes to highly effective charity organizations. My name is Sam Musker, and this is Lantern. I'm joining Asanga here in studio, so thank you to Asanga for having me as a guest host. I studied for two years at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, which is the country where I grew up, and I'm now a junior studying philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, so Lantern is a podcast about young people who are trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. So yeah, looking forward to the episode today. I'm Ross Oroki-Vadonman. I'm an economist at the University of Oxford. I specialize in development economics. Um, and I'm also the chair of the board of an organization called One for the World, uh, which encourages students to give 1% of their income to effective charities after they graduate. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that more. In terms of uh, what I'm passionate about, I guess broadly it's making the world a better place. Like that's a bit cliched, but like genuinely, it's, it's what I kind of work towards in my in my life and in my career. Um, and in terms of how we define that, for me, it's very much uh, kind of improving the well-being of others. Um, and again, I'm sure we'll dig into, into what I think of that meaning uh, in, in more detail. So I guess we get right into the meat of what you're really involved in and to introduce to, to the listeners this concept of effective altruism. Do you want to start off with just what effective altruism is? Yeah, so... I think that the simplest definition is to use evidence and reason to improve the world or to increase the well-being of others. Um, it's, it's both like a, a social movement and I guess a way of approaching doing good. Um, the movement aspects kind of started in the late 2000s, 2007, 2009-ish. Um, and it's now grown into like a pretty large international social movement. Uh, it's a very young movement majority of people involved are, I think, under the age of 30. Even some of the leaders in the movement are in their early 30s. Um, but it's a group of people that are interested in making the world a better place, and they're united by a method of how we think about uh, improving the world, um, and like how we use evidence and reason and logic to try and improve the world. But people come out at quite different places in terms of what they should do. So I think the probably the biggest part of effective altruism are people focused on reducing global poverty. Um, they, they often use some of the new evidence from development economics and also the epidemiology uh, research, uh, looking at how we can best improve the lives of the world's poorest people. And then there's other arms of, oh, people talk about them as cause areas in, uh, in effective altruism. Uh, so people, some people in effective altruism think that it's more important to help animals' well-being. And some people think it's very important to help uh, the well-being of people who are yet to live, so people living in the future and possibly in the very far future. Um, so 
we're united by a method, but people do come out in, in quite different places. So we've gone straight to the high-level global issues, but I'd like to ask, how important is the idea of effective altruism to you as an individual and in the kind of choices that you make? Has it kind of helped you to decide what you want to be, how you conduct yourself? How does it play out in, at the personal level? Yeah, um, so it's had a big impact on my life. Um, and to some extent, I guess it had an impact before effective altruism as a term was coined. Yeah. There are a lot of people involved in the effective altruism movement who they think that they were already thinking along these lines but before it became a cohesive movement. Um, and for me, I guess it kind of started like when I was 16 or so. And previously, I liked drawing. I was good at art. I was good at maths. So I wanted to be an architect. Um, and then I remember like quite distinctly in 2005, I was about 17. Um, there was this movement in the UK called Make Poverty History. Um, and it was based around this 2005 summit of the G7, um, based about like, we have the opportunity to eliminate poverty in our lifetime. And that really engaged me. Um, I remember reading a book by an economist, Jeff Sachs, and it had a big impact on me, had a big impact on my life and my life decisions. Um, so that kind of predates effective altruism, but it started me thinking about, well, how can I use my life and career to do the most good? And at that point, I kind of switched and I became really interested in economics and in politics and thinking about um, driving social change through, uh, through, I guess, those subjects, because at that point I was a student, but also through my career later on. Yeah, so, so then you went off and studied economics and now you're well on that track to becoming an economist. Do you think that that's, do you think that that's going to be a good avenue for making a positive impact to the world and contributing to things like ending poverty? Yeah, so um, th that's, that's my theory, that's my goal. Um, and I've been studying economics for the best part of 10, 11, 12 years now in one form or the other. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I've tried to model my career to, to take me on a path to try and do the most good, like to try and have a big impact in the world. Um, I think studying economics gives you a good set of tools to do that. Um, for me, most of my focus has so far been on development economics, um, where your work can directly affect the policies that are used to try and alleviate poverty. Uh, I, I think there's other areas where economics can help. Uh, so it might be on kind of broader, broader social issues. Um, I'm also interested in animal welfare. And so there's a branch of economics and agricultural economics, which looks at the incentives for production of uh, food products in, in various different ways. Uh, so it, it's quite a nice subject. Economics is a nice subject in terms of it opens a lot of doors for, I think, doing a lot of good in the world. It teaches you tools that are applicable in um, many different areas. Clearly, there's the problem, though, that whatever development economics research you produce, governments have to, at the end of the day, listen to that research and uh, implement evidence-based policy. So I don't know what you think about the trade-off of at a personal level, trying to become involved in the uh, kind of research side of developmental economics, where there's the chance that you produce good stuff, but governments don't listen to you, versus trying to get more involved directly at the policy and implementation level. So personally, why did you, why did you decide to pursue the former and not, not the latter? Yeah, th this is a really good question. This is something like I've been, I've been struggling with for the last 10 years and still think about a lot. Um, I, so I graduated, I, I did politics, philosophy and economics as an undergraduate and I graduated and my immediate thought was I want to go work in policy but first I want to get some experience in a developing country. Um, so I went and worked in Malawi for a water charity uh, and my job was like collecting data on whether their program was working well or not. Um, then actually that, that came to an end because that charity went through some difficulties. They lost a decent proportion of their funding. Uh, there was kind of a split in the organization in which direction they wanted to go. So I only worked and lived there for six months and then came back to the UK. Um, and then I, at that point, I kind of thought, well, how do I improve my skills so that I can increase my impact through my career? I was still thinking like the best way to have an impact is probably through policy uh, in developing countries in one way or another. Um, yeah. and at that point, I started speaking to people who were more senior than me and saying, well, what, what skills do I need? What, um, what sort of path should I take? 
And overwhelmingly, people said, well, you should probably go to grad school <laughs> at some point. And I thought, if I'm going to go to grad school, better to do it sooner rather than later. So I went and did a master's and then enjoyed that more than I was expecting. And then did a PhD and enjoyed that more than I was expecting. And now here I am, still in academia, um, doing a, a postdoc. Um, so I'm, I'm like a research fellow after my PhD. Um, but still, in the last two, three years, I really struggled with, should I stay in academia, where there is this gap, as you mentioned, between the academic research and the policy that's implemented on the ground? Um, or should I go and work directly in policy, where you can have a more direct impact on, on what is actually happening? Um, I come out at a place at the moment where, so there's, there's kind of two facts which influence me. One is, if you leave academia, it's very hard to come back. Yeah. And two within development economics, um, if you stay in academia for longer and you rise up and you're successful and your research publishes well and you get jobs at good universities, if you then leave and go into policy, I think you can have more influence. You, you kind of build up more um, capital in terms of how, how much you're respected uh, in the field and uh, the types of jobs you're able to get. Um, so to give you a good example, the Department for International Development in the UK, which is our equivalent of USAID or Australian Aid, um, their last two chief economists have come from uh, academia. So, so they're professors, they were both professors at Oxford, and they were hired, and they have had a very big impact, I think, in the development policy um, in, in the UK. Uh, so for me, like that's kind of the path I'm on. I don't know whether I'll stay in academia forever, but at, for the moment I'm enjoying it. Uh, I hope that my research is, uh, I'm producing good research and that it's having some impact. Uh, but you're right, there, there is like this risk that there's this disconnect that the work you do in academia doesn't actually um, manage to have an impact on the ground. So for, for those of us who aren't um, necessarily familiar with economics or particularly de development economics, could you give us an insight into how you approach a problem um, on the ground in a Economic, uh, development economics lens. So what's the perspective that you're taking to solve a problem? Yes, so there's a few ways of doing this. Um, the kind of classic one which has had a big impact on policy in the last 15-20 years is the use of randomized trials. Um, so here the big idea is that for a long time we had these development policies or interventions and we did them and we carried them out and we thought they had an impact but we didn't really know whether they had an impact or how big that impact was. Um, and so economics, borrowing from medical sciences, uh, where they use randomized trials all the time to test a new treatment against a placebo, uh, and they randomly select who gets the treatment, who gets the placebo or control. Um, and then because of the random assignment, if you look at the difference in the two groups, um, you can, you can uh, estimate that as a causal causal effect of the treatment. Uh, so you look at some outcome variable, you look at the difference between treatment and control, and that's your estimated, what we call, treatment effect. Um, so people started doing this in economics, uh, and it's had a bunch of names, like the random Easter uh, revolution is one of them, uh, where some pretty influential and famous development economists started running these trials in the last 20 years. Um, and have basically shown that some interventions have much bigger impacts than others. Um, and some of these results are quite counterintuitive. So I'll take education in developing countries as an example, where I think 20 years ago we thought a lot of it was about inputs. Like you give uh, classes better textbooks, you give them better facilities, you build nicer schools. We think that that would increase their test scores. Turns out that some of those inputs don't actually have a big effect. So maybe the textbooks are written for the wrong level or it's quite hard to write a good textbook in a country where there might be multiple languages. Um, so there might be other kind of interventions in education that are more important. So uh, kind of scholarships for school fees have been shown to have a reasonably big impact. Uh, some health interventions are estimated to have a big, big impact on school attendance and then test scores. And so I, I think development economics has got to a place where it's a lot better at understanding what works um, and why it works. Um, so that, that's one approach. There, there's a lot of other stuff going on in development economics. Um, I actually don't work in randomized trials. Um, I work in a slightly different area. 
which is is more about trying to understand why things work. So with the randomized trial, you'll understand, you'll get a very good estimate of the causal impact of a policy on some outcomes. But you won't necessarily know why that has happened, why you've seen that outcome. Uh, so I work on what we call structural models, where you model how people behave and why they behave, and you try and figure out why their behaviors change and why their outcomes change. Looping back to effective altruism as a movement, how, how much of a link do you see between these kinds of ideas and these kinds of ways of thinking about problems uh, and the way that the organization tends to think about, about issues? Um, by organization, what, what do you mean? Sorry. Well, movement, the movement of effective altruism. Yeah, so, so first thing to kind of clarify that, like effective altruism is a very broad movement. There's lots of different organizations um, approaching things in different ways. Um, but I'll talk more about the global poverty side of things, and then we can dig into other things if you'd like. Um, but with global poverty, I think the key problem uh, was that if you are a donor and you want to do good in the world, you don't necessarily need to be a donor, but you're, you're somebody who wants to do good, it can be difficult to know how to do good. Um, so to give you an example, if you are buying a TV or if you're investing in some stocks or shares, you can... You see the product, you see the end product of that purchase. So you bring a TV home, you see how good the TV is, or you buy some stocks and shares and you see what the return is over time. When you're trying to do good, quite often you don't know what the end product is. You might give some money to a charity, um, and a charity produces some nice brochures and tells you some nice stories, but it's very difficult to know whether that actually changed or improved people's lives and by how much. So the link between effective altruism and development economics is trying to bridge that gap. Um, so this development economics revolution has really helped us to understand what works and why. And effective altruism kind of leveraged that research to say to people who want to do good, hey, if you want to help some of the world's poorest people, um, there are some ways that have more evidence and probably have a larger impact than others. And this has been quite powerful in terms of guiding people's donation decisions, but also guiding their kind of broader life decisions, um, whether it's what you do for a career, um, whether it's dietary, dietary restrictions that you, you impose on yourself or, or something else. I want to press you on that a bit. Um, so just to give a bit of background about me, uh, I'm kind of peripherally involved in the effective altruism movement uh, at the University of Cape Town, where I was studying before here at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I helped to set up the EA chapter there. And so one of the events that we held was a giving game where we had several different charities. Uh, we raised a bit of money that was going to be given to one of the charities. Uh, and then we had presentations kind of giving the data-driven case for each of the charities and why it might or might not be a good idea to use our money on each of them. And at the end of the day, we uh, voted as a group and then gave the money to the, to the charity which we thought was most effective. So I was one of the people who had to put together a list of the charities that we were going to, to compare and put up for the vote. And one of the problems that I faced when trying to use the effective altruism mindset in selecting those charities is that there are different charities which are more or less structural in their approach. Uh, so there are some very direct kinds of organizations. Uh, the most direct is something like Give Directly which just gives direct cash transfers to individuals. Uh, but that goes all the way up to far more structural kinds of organizations. Uh, for example, one of the ones that we were considering focuses on pro bono litigation uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so, for example, some of the things that they've done is uh, take governments to court over specific laws to try and get policy change. But so the problem... I faced with trying to use the effective altruism mindset is that there then seems to be a bias towards the more direct kinds of organizations which can be subject to kind of rigorous data standards. So in the end, I thought that the kind of the litigation, the pro bono litigation structural organization was likely to have a very large impact, but we ended up not selecting it because we couldn't present any numbers. Uh, for that organization to compare it to the others. So what do you think about about that challenge? Yeah, I, I think this is a really 
key point. Uh, and I think this is probably the best critique of effective altruism in terms of the conclusions it currently draws. Um, I think I think what you're hitting on is what I call measurability bias in that where the effective altruism movement is more likely to recommend interventions or charities that do things that are inherently more measurable, right? We can put numbers to it. We can say that if you give X number of bed nets, on average, you're going to save one kid's life um, from malaria, or you're going to reduce the number of cases by malaria by 10. Um, you're right that there's other things, there's other interventions out there that might be more effective, but we can't put numbers to. Um, I, I struggle with this. I, I I think it's quite valid to say, well, there's structural changes which might be more effective, uh, but we have more uncertainty over them. To some extent, you can think of this as like a, uh, what, what I would call like a mean variance trade-off, where the mean is your expected impact, and the variance is how much uncertainty you have over that impact. Um, so just think of it as a statistical distribution. Um, and it depends upon your kind of how much uncertainty you want to have in your decisions. Um, so some people are, are quite keen to be very sure that their money has had an impact, whereas other people are more willing to take more risky bets on so much might have a bigger impact in the long run. Um, my view is I think you probably should be willing to take some risky bets, um, whether it's on structural change or something else. Um, like, like another good example is uh, political advocacy in some ways. Uh, so whether it's for, if, if you just care about global poverty, you might do political advocacy to increase aid funding. Um, but it's very hard to know whether that advocacy had a difference, made a difference in any way. Um, and effective altruism has looked into some of these and hasn't ultimately recommended them because it's very hard to get evidence, uh, which I think is a challenge. The one thing I'd say though is, although I think this is potentially a weakness of effective altruism in terms of the conclusions. It's not necessarily a weakness in terms of its methods in that um, I think there, there are effective altruists out there who agree with the principles of effective altruism, agree that we should be trying to do the most good in the world and we should be trying to do it in a way that's informed by evidence and logic and reason, but come out of a place where they're willing to take more uh, I guess more risky bets. Um, maybe risk isn't the right way of doing it, but they're willing to invest in something with more, more uncertainty, whether that's political advocacy or, or something else completely. Um, and, and I think you can come out of that place. It's not the mainstream in effective altruism. As you, as you point out, the mainstream in global poverty and effective altruism is to give to quite narrowly defined kind of vertical organizations which do one thing and do it really well. So whether it's bed nets or giving money directly to the poor people with give directly or deworming treatments, um, that tends to be more commonly um, more commonly used in effective altruism. But, but the, the framework doesn't preclude you from focusing on those other areas, those more structural changes. Yeah. I'd like to press you on that though, because I'm not so sure how, how neatly we can separate conclusions from the actual, uh, uh, the actual ideology of effective altruism. Um, so I think one way to see this problem is that, yes, the ideology of effective altruism is solid. We just want to do the most good, but there are discrepancies in what we might want to recommend as, uh, as the final output of that decision-making process. Or it might be a deeper problem. Uh, so something you hinted at is the idea that there's subjectivity involved in as a donor, as somebody trying to make a, a positive impact, how much appetite of a risk do you have? Uh, to what extent do you want to know that you've done some good? And to what extent do you want to uh, take a low probability shot at doing a massive amount of good? And I think that to a certain extent, that's an inherently subjective call. Uh, and hints at the fact that maybe there are other inherently subjective aspects of the decision of what to give money to. So. Do you think that the initial assumption that there is uh, one unified set of recommendations, do you think that that's a valid assumption in the first place? So I, I, I would disagree that, um, that there's one unifying set of assumptions, or there's certainly not a unifying set of conclusions. Um, I, I think what guides, what, um, what kind of unites effective altruists and what guides us is is the want for our decisions to be informed by at least some 
some reasoning uh, and hopefully some evidence if it's available. Um, I think you're 100% right that all of these decisions involve some subjective value, value judgments, um, whether it's to do with like your morality, like how do you trade off a human's well-being versus an animal's well-being, or how do you trade off uh, whether it's better to cure someone of malaria who's under the age of five versus give someone an extra year of schooling. Like these, these are really hard yeah. questions and, and we don't have a good ways of answering them. We, we have some methods. Um, so health economists use this quality adjusted life year to try and compare between different health impacts. The idea being that we care about the quality of people's life as well as the quantity. And so you can use this metric to try and compare different health, um, health interventions. But when you're comparing a health intervention to an education intervention or an economic empowerment intervention, that's a lot more difficult. So inherently, we, we are all making these uh, subjective decisions all the time um, in effective altruism and outside of effective altruism. Uh, I think effective altruism is, is uh, promising in that it's, it's sometimes quite explicit about these, um, about these value judgments they make. So if you look into GiveWell, so GiveWell is an organization that does really thorough charity um, recommendations and they do really thorough research on the outputs of charities but if you go on their website and you look at their top recommended charities they've been very explicit about how they're trading off um, a year of extra income versus uh, mm. reduction in malaria incidents. Um, you mentioned quality adjusted life years which sounds like a very foundational metric in the way that you would approach these decisions. What, what is it? How do you, how do you measure a uh, quality adjusted life year. Yeah, so the um, the kind of big picture of a quality adjusted life year is it's trying to uh, measure the overall um, kind of value or uh, value of no sorry sorry let me start that again. It's trying to measure the the quantity and the quality of life. So one quality adjusted life year would be a full year of life lived at perfect health. Um, and half a quality adjusted life year could be either half a year of life lived at perfect health or a full year of life lived at health measured at 50%. So obviously this is quite difficult to do. Um, I'm not an expert on quality adjusted life years, but my memory is that they have different um, weights for how valuable or how um, good a year of life is depending on which conditions you have. Um, so living a year with blindness, they might weigh half as good as living a year without blindness. And so this is very subjective. My understanding is they kind of come up with these weights by doing lots of surveys all over the world uh, of people with these conditions and without these conditions to try and understand how it affects their well-being. Um, so I, I guess the big picture here is like you can you can pick holes in this metric like yeah. big time. Like it's by, by no means perfect. There's huge literature kind of debating how useful it is. Um, and how accurate it is. But it is one of the few metrics out there that does allow you to um, compare uh, well-being between people who might uh, experience different uh, health interventions or health problems. Yeah, one of the concerns I have is that it's obviously very health-biased uh, if the quality adjustment is on medical grounds. Uh, I was expecting your answer to be something more on the lines of uh, a subjective uh, self-reporting of happiness or well-being um, as, a, as a means of adjusting the life year. Um, so surprised that that came out. Yeah, so um, it was developed, I think, by the WHO. So I think actually the disability adjusted life year mm. was developed by the WHO. Uh, there's two measures that are both very similar. Um, and, and so it's been used by health economists. At the moment, there's some push within the effective altruism movement to develop a more general form of this metric. Um, so some sort of I think the current working name is a Wally, like a well-being adjusted life year. Yes. Um, where the goal is to be able to compare not just uh, your health status, but also your income status or education status, um, other outcomes we might be interested in. And I think that will likely use these more subjective um, measures of happiness or well-being. I just want to step back for a moment. In terms of... Uh effective altruism itself. So if I'm um, looking at a charity uh, that I want to, to donate to or I'm looking for a charity to donate to, how does using an effective altruism mindset differ from what typically happens? 
yeah, this is a good question. And, and it kind of gets us back to um, why effective altruism came about. And, and it's related to that problem I outlined earlier of there being this gap between the uh, information you have as a donor with respect to what you have achieved with your donation. So I think the majority of people when they donate to charity um, want to do good, but might not know the best way to kind of measure how much good they're doing um, and might not have the time or inclination to be able to research that to a level that is going to inform their decision in any reasonable way. Um, so there's a, uh, there's a survey from a few years ago um, that we sometimes would use in effective altruist um, kind of events and presentations and I can't remember the numbers exactly but it would ask people what amount of research they did before they donated to a charity and there was a huge, well, what I thought was a huge number who did essentially no research, who would just give to a charity based on some marketing. Um, so maybe that was 20, 30%. Then there'd be like a chunk of people who would go on a website, dig about a bit, but that's all they would do. And only 3% uh, of people said they did what we would call comparative research, where they would um, look at one charity and their kind of inputs and their outputs, essentially what they achieve per dollar donated and look at another charity's inputs and outputs, what they achieve for dollar donated, and then make a decision on which charity is going to give them the biggest bang for their buck. Um, so that's only 3% of people. This is from a few years ago. Um, and I think this is something that effective altruism is trying to change. Um, so groups like GiveWell, who do these really in-depth charity reviews and try and assess the inputs and the outputs of each charity um, and how much... Uh, value they're getting for every dollar donated. I think they help to bridge this informational gap. Um, they fill the role of doing a ton of research for um, for donors in terms of where you should be giving if you want to maximize your impacts. Uh, they publish all of their work and they, uh, they kind of make it freely available for everyone uh, to help guide these decisions. Um, just one note, I should uh, I should say I did work for GiveWell earlier this year for nine months. <laughs> so I, I'm not speaking on their behalf, but uh, I should also just disclose uh, that affiliation. Yeah. Do you not think, though, that the kind of personal link that people feel to giving charity, do you not think that that's important? Uh, like, people, most people, to be realistic, aren't effective altruists. Most people need a kind of personal motivation kind of feeling of having done something for something that they particularly care about mm. uh, in order to kind of motivate their, their charity. So to what extent do you think that perhaps effective altruism might be alienating certain people by kind of downplaying uh, that kind of subjective link that people feel they need in giving away what's, at mm. the end of the day, their own resources? And I think what comes to mind there, Sam, is typically when you, when you donate... You, you like to see um, often what you think is the tangible impact in terms of a story. So when you, when you donate to, for example, like I remember donating to the Fred Hollows Foundation and it says your donation um, allowed, you know, this person to have cataract surgery. And obviously this, there isn't like my money didn't directly help this person, but they're providing me with a story which I can connect to and, you know, it makes me happy and feel good and warm and fuzzy, right? Um, because there's a person I can associate um, my donation to. Yeah, I, yeah, it's interesting to see where, how can it, how can appeal to numbers work for, for everyone? Yeah, yeah, I, this is a really good point. Um, and it's a tension that effective altruism has struggled with a lot and continues to struggle with it. Um, the way I see it is, to what extent do you want to kind of uh, play the game? Or to what extent do you want to change the game? In terms of people uh, seem to have these preferences where they want to give to a charity that they can see this tangible impact. Um, and, and often that's not even the case with like the Fred Hollows Foundation where they gave you this personal story. Often people want to see it in their community, on their doorstep. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people want to go and be the person who helps out a soup kitchen or mm -hmm. gives a donation. And this is like really understandable from like a human psychology level. Um, but I think we can all do a lot more good if we do try and take a slightly, um, it, it feels cold and calculating to some extent, but um, I think ultimately it can still be passionate. Um, 
and it still can be empathetic if we look at how we can help the most people by the most amount. Um, so EA really struggles with this. Uh, I struggle with this. I know a bunch of people struggle with this in terms of how we communicate to potential donors. Um, so do we, yeah, do we try and appeal to these emotions? Do we give personal stories of people who would be helped if you give to these really effective charities? Or do we try and encourage people to think more analytically about where they're giving um, and how they can do the most good? And so I'll give you one good example of uh, how EA charities kind of uh, come to a conclusion here to try and balance both. So Give Directly, who I think you featured on your last podcast with Yash Katari, he, um, well, that they have traditionally been very focused on statistics and data, and their website used to have no pictures on in the early days, and it was all about, <laughs> we know that if you give $1,000 to this poor family, they're going to spend it in this way on average, and it's going to improve their livelihood in this way. Um, and they kept getting this feedback where people wanted to know some personal stories. So they came to mm -hmm. a conclusion that they didn't want to become another charity that cherry picks the best personal stories and uses that in their leaflets and pamphlets. So my understanding is what they do now is they randomly select some of their um, participants, some of the people that receive their cash grants, and they ask them to tell a short story. And they publish this on their website. And every day you get these new stories coming through. But it's a random representative sample. And so it kind of gives you both. It gives you information in terms of um, what's, what's the representative average case and also mm. gives you that direct connection to the person who you're helping, uh, which I think is quite nice. That's tricky, though, because, I mean, Give Directly itself would identify as part of the effective altruism movement. And so as an organization, they could probably get more, get more donations by cherry-picking cherry their case studies like the other charities that they're competing against do. So then I suppose it's a choice between uh, directly increasing the extent to which you fulfill your mandate as an effective altruist-aligned organization by pulling the heartstrings and increasing the donations versus propping up the more abstract ideology of the organization of remaining true to the data-driven mindset. So, yeah, very, very difficult way up to make. Yeah, I, and I don't, I don't know what the optimal solution is here like I don't know what the correct balance is um, I think you're right so the average donor um, responds better to personal stories there's actually really good research by someone at Penn uh, Deborah Small she's a professor at Wharton um, and she looks at she, she's a psychology professor she does a lot of behavior economics and she does these experiments where she gives people a personal story of someone um, you randomly you randomly selected to either get a personal story or some data telling you what the impact will be. And she finds that on average, the people that get the personal story do give more. So I think in a short run, you're right. Like maybe if GiveDirectly did cherry pick some stories and like played on the heartstrings, they might get more donations in a short run. I think what effective altruism is trying to do is change how people give, change how people try and do good more generally. I think we're taking a, a longer term perspective where we're arguing that, um, that people should try and be more analytical in these decisions. And, and this is the idea behind the giving games that you mentioned earlier, is, is trying to get people not to give based on these nice stories or glossy brochures or cool pictures, um, but to really dig into what impacts these charities are having. Yeah. One thing I'd like to discuss is, so one thing we've mentioned is this tension between people wanting to give to people in their community that they feel more of a personal link to versus giving 10,000 miles away in Uganda, where they've got 15 times the purchasing power. Um, so there's definitely a tension there. And something which came out quite recently uh, was Give Directly's decision uh, to, instead of mm. uh, carrying on with their normal operations uh, in sub-Saharan African countries, uh, they decided to run a short-term program for the victims of the, the hurricane in Texas. Uh, so what do you think about that specific move by the organization? Because that's clearly not fully aligned with their uh, overall commitment to only spending where the per dollar impact is maximized. But again, it plays into this idea of to what extent do you just maximize impact and to what extent do you try and win over the people who are actually going to be donating to you, which by and large is people in the rich world who care about their neighbors? Yeah. I um, 
I guess I should be careful here because I don't know much about GiveDirectly's decision and, and why they mm-hmm. why they decided to give cash transfers in Houston. I, I was aware of it, and I, I thought it was a really interesting decision at the time, and I wondered what the the reasoning behind it. I see a few kind of reasons they might still want to do it based on effective altruist principles. One is that people might genuinely be in desperate need in Houston to the extent where, because they've been struck by a terrible tragedy, they might be in as dire need uh, as people in developing countries. That's possibly tough to to reconcile with like the vast differences in um, in kind of resources available in Houston versus Western Kenya, where they normally operate, or Uganda. Um, but I think you can possibly make an argument for that, and, and some economists do make that argument. So Angus Deaton, who won a Nobel Prize in economics, uh, I think two years ago now, he's made that argument that the very worst off people in America are at least as bad off as some of the poorest people in sub-Saharan Africa, um, especially when you look at issues such as substance abuse or incarceration, uh, mental health issues. Um, you, you can make an argument these people are pretty badly off. So, so that's one reason they might have done it. Another might be a kind of, I don't know, but potentially a PR thing uh, where they say, listen, we, we realize that people feel um, much closer to those within our own country. And so we're going to run this exercise as a way to raise our profile and maybe raise more money for people in Western Kenya in the long run. And, and a third reason might be something that give directly very interested in is uh, basic income. And, and so it might be a way of uh, trying to Know, increase awareness of their experiments of basic income in Kenya um, and also kind of start this experiment of giving unconditional cash transfers to people in the US. Uh, so again, I, I should caveat this answer by saying I have no idea what their strategy was behind this. Uh, this is just me completely surmising kind of three ways they might have come to that conclusion. But I thought it was a really interesting decision. To the first point, though, I think the effect of altruism mindset is not just uh how badly in need are these pers- are these people versus these other people? It's about uh, how much of an impact on that need and that desperation can I have per dollar spent? Because at the end of the day, there's, there's finite resources. So I think very difficult to make the argument, even if the victims of the hurricane were as bad off as people in sub-Saharan Africa might have been, very difficult to make the argument that per dollar uh, you can actually impact that more than elsewhere. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, yeah, so, so effective altruism typically tries to analyze a cause area or a potential intervention by looking at the scale of the problem, the size of the problem, uh, whether it's neglected. So are there other people, other organizations working in that area and how tractable the problem is? Um, so here, I guess, like the scale of the problem was obviously large, uh, like the floods in Houston are tons of people displaced um, and they're probably very poorly uh, like had a very large negative impact on them so scale is quite large the attractability I think is probably pretty reasonable in terms of you know you can probably easily identify these people it's probably reasonably straightforward to figure out how to help them um, it probably wasn't that neglected in terms of this my guess is there's plenty of organizations helping people in Texas it's a pretty rich country there's a lot of uh, non-profit organizations and governmental organizations that would be helping them. And then your point, I guess, is, well, to what extent does a dollar in the U.S. help versus a dollar in Western Kenya? And there, I think, it, helping people in the U.S. is just a lot more expensive because prices are higher. Definitely think it was a good PR move by Give Directly. I think that uh, making Americans more amenable to the idea of Give Directly uh, mm. is the point where that, where that activity makes sense. Um, but then we're back at the problem of, you know, in order to market yourself, you have to transgress effective altruism principles in the same way that effective, uh, effective altruism charities might want to present cherry-picked case studies. I see this as, as exactly the same kind of conundrum. And I think a broader question that, that I think of is that is effective altruism, I guess, in terms of the framework, yes, in terms to maximise impact, we want as many donors as possible. But do you think realistically effective altruism is something that will become a widespread uh, method for people to evaluate how they give? Um, given like, you know, Give Directly have come in here at the University of Pennsylvania for one for the world sessions and people, and they, 
in their presentation will say like, you know, we're a bunch of geeks and like, this is kind of like a nerd charity and like, you know, data driven, like we love the numbers. Um, does that kind of create almost a sense of elitism in a sense? And like, is effective altruism itself, should that be marketed to everyone or should we stay with this, this subset of the population and do something else for um, the, the wider the wider network? You guys are doing well. You've hit on like a key debate in EA again. Um, this is something that people talk about a lot and there's quite significant disagreement here in terms of how how elitist is effective altruism, how elitist should it be. Um, and part of it comes down to which problems you think are most pressing. Um, yep, yep. So a really rough and kind of I'm generalizing here to a large extent, but a rough characterization of people who tend to be more interested in global poverty and in improving animal welfare tend to want this to be a very broad coalition and a very wide social movement uh, that involves people of all different backgrounds. Um, and, and I think they work to try and achieve that. So I guess the best examples are um, given what we can that really tries to, so given what we can as an organization that uh, ask people to give 10% of their income to effective charities. But a lot of their pitch is like, you can make a huge difference with your life regardless of uh, what your background is or what your profession is. But then on the other hand, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have people, and, and I think these people tend to be more focused on um, on issues of the well-being of people in the far future. And, and I think for them, uh, what really matters is that the elite, the people at the very top, are convinced uh, that the far future is important because they're the people that are going to be more likely to have an effect on a far future. Mm. Sorry, the, the other way you can think of this question is, say all you care about is uh, directing money towards effective charities. Well, the, the wealth distribution in the world is so unequal and so mm -hmm. much of the wealth is held by the top 1% or the top 0.01% that maybe if all you care about is moving enough money to effective charities, you should focus on those key people. Yeah, so it, it definitely seems to me kind of from the, the periphery of, of the effective altruism movement that that's a very big split uh, in the way that people think about it. Uh, there's the camp which is uh, very focused on kind of RCTs and data-driven approaches to poverty alleviation, particularly in Africa. Uh, and then there's people who are focused on very abstract, uh, far-field issues like reducing existential risk from artificial intelligence, uh, reducing the risk of nuclear warfare. Um, so to what extent do you think that uh, effective altruism is actually a united movement at this point versus different camps with, with somewhat incommensurable uh, outcomes? Yeah, I, uh, I think the movement is united. And, and this kind of gets back to something I said right at the beginning of our conversation, that we're united by the, the methodology and the kind of uh, ideology of doing the most good we can, but informing our decisions by kind of evidence and reason. Um, and people do come out at very different places. Uh, and so you, you mentioned that global poverty group, group of people focus on global poverty, and then some people focus on these far future issues. Um, and often maybe the most talked about one is existential risks, um, in particular from uh, artificial intelligence, uh, which I'll talk about more in a second. But there's also a third camp of, of people who also care about um, animal welfare. Um, the mm -hmm. kind of reasoning being here is that there's a huge number of animals in the world. So there's, I think, the best estimates are there are about 58 billion um, land animals on farms in the world. And that doesn't include wild animals, doesn't include uh, sea animals uh, or marine animals. Um, so it's just a huge number of animals in the world. So if we care about animals, then that's a massive, massive problem if they suffer in any large way or, or if their well-being isn't very good. So there are three camps. Um, I, think, I think the movement's united by the methodology, but there's also people within the movement who care about multiple of those cause areas. Um, and there's other cause areas that have received less attention. Uh, so there's a small group of people within effective altruism really pushing for mental health issues um, all over the world to be considered a really important and neglected uh, cause area, and, and I think they have a very good point there. Um, but I, I'm an example of someone who I, I am convinced by all three of these major cause areas and some of the others. Um, 
I tend to focus in my career on development economics because that's where I have expertise and that's where I see I can make the biggest difference. Yeah. If I had a different skill set, if I was a computer programmer or I, I was better at maths than I am, then maybe <laughs> I would um, be able to have a bigger impact by, um, by working on machine learning problems or working on the ethics of artificial intelligence. Um, so part of the reason people disagree is down to these subjective judgments that you mentioned earlier. And, and sometimes these are value judgments. Sometimes these are uh, different opinions about the state of the world or how much influence we can have over policy in different areas. And sometimes it's to do with your skills and, and uh, how much difference you can make by working in different areas. Thank you again for listening to part one of our 11th episode of Lantern. That again was Rosa O'Keefe O'Donnell, who's a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Oxford, where he's a developmental economist and chairperson for the board of One for the World. You can find all the books, research, and organizations that Rosa mentioned in the show notes. And this was a longer episode, and there was some great content here that we didn't want to cut down to um, one episode. So we're doing two parts, the first part of which you just listened to, and the second part of this episode will be dropping next Sunday across all our platforms. That's on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get uh, your podcasts. If you did enjoy the show, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us grow and share these amazing conversations with more and more people across the globe. You can also keep up to date with um, the latest content we're pushing out on Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter, which are all under Project Lantern underscore, all one word, Project Lantern underscore, and of course on our website, projectlantern.com.au. If you have any feedback for us or just want to say hi, you can reach out to us anytime on our social media or via email at hello at projectlantern.com.au. Again, we're really excited to have you on this journey in creating a global launchpad for youth at Social Impact. Until next time, stay awesome.